Good afternoon and welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council's program with guest speaker Heather Brandon-Smith. Thanks to Ms. Brandon-Smith and to all of you who have joined us online today. I'm Dave Martin, president of the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council and your host for today's program. We would like to acknowledge and thank our annual donors, sponsors, and partners for their support. And those sponsors are the Iowa Arts Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, Humanities Iowa and the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Iowa's International Programs, Honors Program, Public Policy Center, and Center for Human Rights. The Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization, Midwest One Bank, and City Channel 4 for providing online access to all of ICFRC's programs along with the University of Iowa Library Archives. ICFRC has adopted the Native American Land Acknowledgement prepared for the City of Iowa City's Ad Hoc Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Human Rights Commission. We recognize that our home community of Iowa City now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. The full text of our acknowledgement is on our website at icfrc.org. So as we get started, just uh, a couple of Zoom etiquette tips. We have muted all the attendees and we ask you to keep your video turned off for the duration of the presentation so you do not interrupt the speaker during her remarks. Following our speaker's presentation around 1245 or so, we will have a 15 minute Q&A and you will be able to submit your questions via the chat function. And at that time, we invite you to turn on your video, but we will keep your audio muted uh, to avoid any background noises. So it is now my pleasure to introduce Heather Brandon Smith, who will speak about the authorization for use of military force and US forever wars. Ms. Brandon Smith is a legislative director for militarism and human rights at the Friends Committee on National Legislation in Washington, DC, known as FCNL. She leads their work to repeal outdated war authorization, promote respect for human rights and international law, and reduce US armed interventions around the world. Prior to joining FCNL, she served as the Advocacy Council for National Security at Human Rights First, where she worked to advance US national security policies that are consistent with human rights and the rule of law. Ms. Brandon Smith is an adjunct professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center. Her writing has appeared in The Hill, Lawfare, Just Security, and Intercross, which is the blog of the International Committee of the Red Cross. She holds an LLM degree from Georgetown University Law Center and a BA in Politics and International Relations, an LLB, and an LLM from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. It is my great pleasure to welcome Ms. Brandon Smith to ICFRC today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Dave. Uh, and thank you, Catherine. Uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here and to get to speak to you all about this issue of the authorization for use of military force and US forever wars. Um, so to, just to start, you might have seen that shortly after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last year, President Biden said before the United Nations General Assembly, I stand here today for the first time in 20 years, the United States is not at war 
we've turned the page. But according to the facts on the ground of current US military operations and also the legal authorities that underpin those operations and the executive branch's interpretation of those, the US forever wars continue on. And when it comes to those legal authorities, the first place to start is with the authorization for use of military force, which is com commonly referred to as the AUMF. So what does the AUMF have to do with US forever wars? Well, firstly, I should say there are actually two current AUMFs being relied upon for US operations. Uh, the first was passed one week after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, it's referred to as the 2001 AUMF. And the second is the AUMF that was passed to authorize the war against Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq in 2002. And that is commonly referred to as the 2002 Iraq AUMF. So these two laws have formed the legal basis for the US forever wars for the last two decades. Uh, they've been stretched by presidents on both sides of the aisle to cover military operations that are far beyond what Congress intended and also far beyond really what the founders intended when they divided the war powers between the executive branch and Congress in the Constitution and they explicitly gave Congress the power to declare war. So to get a full understanding of the AUMFs and how they impact US forever wars, I'm gonna discuss four matters. First, I'm going to discuss the constitutional division of war powers between the president and the executive branch and the role of the president when it comes to war. Second, I'll talk a bit about the history of the AUMFs generally, including what uh, courts have said about what Congress can do to authorize war. Uh, third, we will move into the current AUMF, the 2001 AUMF and the 2002 Iraq AUMF. Uh, we'll look at what they said. Uh, we'll look at congressional intent. And then we'll look at how they've been stretched by the executive branch over the last 20 years. And then fourth, I will discuss where we are now, how the withdrawal from Afghanistan has impacted the AUMFs and just really where we are when it comes to these forever wars. Uh, so I have shared my screen, so hopefully everybody can see it. Uh, so just got a few um, slides to sort of accompany the presentation. So really to fully understand the public problematic nature of the status quo under the current AUMFs, we need to look at how the constitution divides war powers between Congress and the president. So for Congress, its war power is found in Article 2, Section 8, Clause 11, and it states that Congress has the power to declare war. Now, the president also has a war power, and that is found in Article 2, Section 2, which says the president shall be commander in chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. So this commander-in-chief power gives the president the power to carry out a war, so the day-to-day -day operations and tactical decisions. But it also provides a limited authority to use some military force without first obtaining congressional authorization. And it should be clear that this is a limited authority, and it's limited to defending the nation against a sudden attack. 
And we know this, and it was confirmed actually by a Supreme Court case called the Prize Cases in 1863, which is a Civil War era case. So in this case, the Supreme Court held that President Lincoln was permitted to establish a blockade and seize ships during the Civil War, even though Congress had not yet, uh, had not yet declared war against the Confederacy. So the court, uh, to make this ruling, they looked back at the constitutional conventions, they looked at what the founders said about the commander-in-chief powers, and they found that under this power, the president had authority to use limited force without congressional authorization to defend the nation against a sudden attack. So if you ever see the president claim that a military operation is carried out under the president's Article II powers, this is what they're referring to, the commander-in-chief power. But again, I want to emphasize that the commander-in-chief power, this Article II presidential war power, was intended to be very limited and for defensive purposes only. And the reason that Congress gave sorry, the reason that the founders gave Congress the power to declare war was because they didn't want this decision about whether to go to war and all of the powers and all of the risks to life that come with that decision. They didn't want this decision to be made by just one person. They wanted a safeguard. They wanted a check on unilateral war making. So they required that the decision to go to war be made by the collective judgment of both political branches the president would need to persuade both houses of Congress that war was necessary. So John Jay actually wrote about what the framers were guarding against in the Federalist Papers. Uh, he said, absolute monarchs will often make war when their nations are to get nothing by it, but for purposes and objects merely personal, such as a thirst for military glory, revenge for personal affronts, ambition, or private compacts to aggrandize or support their particular families or partisans. And I actually think that James Madison described the Constitution's division of war powers best when he said, the Constitution supposes what history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature. So now the power to declare war is not the only power that Congress has that relates to war. Uh, the Constitution also assigns to Congress the power to appropriate funds for military operations, which provides really an additional check on war. So as Thomas Jefferson wrote, we have already given in example one effectual check to the dog of war by transferring the power of letting him loose from the executive to the legislative body, from those who are to spend and those who are to pay. So this appropriations power enables Congress to stop a war by cutting off funding. And you know, to determine whether it should use its power in this way or not, uh, you know, Congress needs to be able to exercise effective oversight of war. So uh, to, again, to quote this time from a bipartisan expert report on the division of war powers, uh, which I was going to put in the chat, but it's a little tricky, so I can, I can provide that another time. Uh, but these, these experts said, Congress does not complete its war powers duties by authorizing the use of force abroad. It should also conduct appropriate and regular oversight 
of the strategic use of force, monitor the domino domestic legal effects of the authorization, and when appropriate, revise or rescind the authorization. So the threat environment may have changed today compared to the threats faced by the United States at the time of the founding, but really the reasons for requiring the collective judgment of both political branches to make this hard decision of whether to go to war are still valid today. You know, there's still a need today to ensure that this immense power is not in only one person. So I want to talk now a little bit about how Congress can authorize the use of force. So we often hear about how Congress hasn't actually declared war since 1942. And this is true. The last time that Congress declared war, passed a declaration of war, was during World War II in 1942 against uh, the country of Romania. It's a little bit of trivia. Uh, but there are actually two ways that Congress can use its constitutional war power to authorize the use of force, to authorize a war. It can either pass a declaration of war or it can pass a statutory force authorization, which is what an AUMF is. So there is a difference between declaration of war and an AUMF. And the main difference is that a declaration of war authorizes what we call total wars. This is when there is no limit to what force can be used. And, and these declarations of war, they also trigger a range of domestic standby authorities, for example, authorizing conscription, uh, authorizing preventative detention of enemy aliens, things like warrantless surveillance, that sort of thing. So that's what you get with a declaration of war, total of war. But as I mentioned, Congress hasn't declared total war uh, since World War II. But since that time, Congress has passed use of force statutes or AUMS to authorize a more limited range of force. Slide here. Okay, also declaration of war and statutory force authorization. So I want to also note that uh, it, this authorization of more limited force is not new. This is not something that has only happened since World War II. Uh, there's actually an 1800 case called Bars versus Tingey. And in that case, the Supreme Court unanimously confirmed that Congress could authorize more limited wars. And this was held in the context of what is often called the quasi-war with France. So in that case, the Supreme Court held that Congress could authorize wars that were limited as to places, persons, and things. And in that case, Congress authorized just the Navy to seize French vessels in order to defend American ships that were being threatened by French attacks. So first, Congress authorized the use of force only in U.S. waters, and then later it, it authorized the use of force on high seas as well. So that's, that's a really sort of um, seminal example of how Congress can authorize a more limited use of force. So more recent example of AUMFs with limits include the 1993 authorization to use force in Somalia and the 1983 AUMF for Lebanon. Now, both of these authorizations, they limited the type of operations that were permitted. They limited the location where force could be used and the amount that, of force that could be used, um, sorry, and the amount of time that force could be used for. So they set an expiration date, which we commonly refer to as a sunset date. 
So to look at or prior AUMFs, these are the different sorts of limits that we've had uh, in AUMFs and declarations of war. So as it says here, you know, 56% contained geographical limitations, 37% limited the kinds of military operations or forces authorized to be employed, uh, and then 29%, so 10 prior AUMFs, uh, have contained an expiration date. Uh, again, I can provide uh, a link to the paper where this comes from for those who are interested. So now turning to current AUMFs, the 2001 AUMF and the 2002 Iraq AUMF. So, yes, so 2001 AUMF is what we have on our screen. Now let's start with that one. This law was passed by Congress on September 14, 2001, three days after the 9-11 attacks. It was signed by, into law by President Bush on September 18, 2001, so just one week after the 9-11 attacks. Um, many of you might have heard that the 2001 AUMF is only 60 words long, and it is, so I've put it all up here. It says the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. Now, if you look at the text of the authorization, it's actually pretty specific. It authorizes the president to use force against those who are responsible for the 9-11 attacks, and those who harbored them. So this would be Al-Qaeda who attacked us on 9-11 and the Taliban who harbored Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Now at the time, uh, you know, the US wasn't entirely certain who was responsible for the attacks. You know, they thought that it was likely Al-Qaeda, the CIA thought it was Al-Qaeda, but that's the reason that this text is not specific and doesn't name Al-Qaeda. They didn't name the group. They used descriptive language in case. But really, the congressional intent was only to target those groups. And in saying that, I will say that the legislative history of the 2001 AUMF supports this. So, for example, uh, the final text of the 2001 AUMF is actually not the same as the text that was originally submitted to Congress by President Bush. The original text had a much more open-ended purpose. Uh, that purpose was to deter and preempt any future acts of terrorism or aggression against the United States. So you'll see that that text was not tethered to the 9-11 attacks or to those who attacked the United States on 9-11. But Congress changed this language to only authorize the use of force to prevent acts of international terrorism by those who attacked the United States on 9-11, not to deter terrorism writ large. And members of Congress on both sides of the aisle confirmed this intent, that this is what they were voting for. So, for example, then Senator Carl Levin said, this authorization for the use of force is limited to the nations, organizations, or persons 
involved in the terrorist attacks of September 11. It is not a broad authorization for the use of military force against any nation, organization, or person not involved in the September 11 terrorist attacks. And Representative Lamar Smith from the other side of the aisle said, the resolution limits the president to use force only against those responsible for the terrorist attacks last Tuesday. And also Representative uh, Jan Schakowsky said, this resolution has been carefully drafted to restrict our response to those who we know to be responsible for this atrocity. So it really was intended to be restricted to those responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Now to move on to the 2002 Iraq AUMF. So this authorization authorized the president to use the armed forces against the continuing threat posed by Iraq and to enforce all relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions regarding Iraq. So uh, for those of you who are old enough, uh, you will recall that the concern at the time was that Saddam Hussein, then the president of Iraq, had developed weapons of mass destruction, so chemical, biological weapons, uh, and that he was seeking to develop a nuclear weapon. So in passing this AUMF, this 2002 Iraq AUMF, the intent was to target Saddam Hussein's a regime in Iraq for a particularly specific purpose, you know, these weapons of mass destruction. So we know that that was not the case. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but nevertheless, you know, the US went in, uh, you know, began a war, Saddam was deposed and, you know, military operations continued. So now let's look at how these two AUMFs are being used today. So the 2001 AUMF authorized the use of force against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, arguably in Afghanistan, where they were located. So the Trump administration provided a report to Congress in March 2018, which said that, the milita that military operations were being conducted in at least seven countries, being Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, Somalia, and Niger. Now, in that same report, the administration also listed out several groups against which force had been used that year, being Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, uh, the Haqqani Network, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and in Yemen, um, Al and Al-Shabaab. Uh, and, and then since then, we have seen uh, the 2001 AUMF used to justify using force against ISIS and then also against Syrian government forces. So in uh, 2020, uh, the Trump administration also killed an Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, uh, and nine others in a drone strike um, in Iraq, which it claimed was authorized by the 2002 Iraq AUMF, and also the president's Article II Commander-in-Chief powers. And then the Biden administration has attacked Iranian-backed militias in Syria, which it claimed was justified under the president's Article II powers as well. So I should say, though, that this expansion of existing AUMFs is not new. It didn't start with the Trump administration. The Bush and Obama administrations also expanded the scope of the AUMFs far beyond what Congress intended. So how did this happen? You know, how, how have now four administrations been able to stretch 
existing AUMFs so far beyond what Congress intended? Well, really there's three factors that have enabled this expansion. The first is this term, this concept of associated forces. So the associated forces concept is probably the most significant tool that the executive branch has used to stretch existing AUMFs. It's done this by claiming uh, that the 2001 AUMF authorizes the administration to use force against associated forces of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So I wanted to include here, oh, sorry, <laughs> gotta go back. The, yeah, here, I've included here the text again of the 2001 AUMF. And I think it's worth looking at it again because the term associated forces does not appear in the 2001 AUMF. This has been read into the law by the executive branch. Uh, and they have said that Congress has acquiesced to the inclusion of this, for, this, this term uh, in the AUMF because they have continued to fund operations being conducted out of, under it. So uh, the second factor uh, of the expansion of these AUMFs has been the Obama administration's willingness to expand the scope of the 2001 AUMF to ISIS in Iraq in 2014. So, you know, now we've sort of just accepted that the US is at war with ISIS, but, you know, when this happened in 2014, it was a very different situation. You know, then the United States had been out of Iraq for a couple of years, uh, it went back in, in August 2014, but this was justified under the president's Article II authority. And they said that this was to protect compelling US interests and also as a matter of humanitarian intervention to rescue the Yazidi population on Mount Sinjar. But then as the fighting continued, it appeared that a more long-term operation would be needed that you know, the president couldn't continue to re rely on this Article II commander-in-chief limited power to continue to fight ISIS. So then the Obama administration, uh, in quite a surprising move, uh, move, argued that it already had authority to fight ISIS, and this was under the 2001 AUMF, this Al-Qaeda Taliban Afghanistan AUMF. So, I really want to emphasize just how shocked members of Congress and legal experts were by this claim. It had really been assumed that because at the time, ISIS and Al-Qaeda were fighting each other. So ISIS couldn't be considered an associated force of Al-Qaeda. Uh, so everyone thought that the administration would need to come to Congress to obtain a new fresh ISIS AUMF to fight ISIS. But the Obama administration put forth a different claim uh, White House Press Secretary Josh Ernest essentially said that ISIS was the new Al-Qaeda. It was a, su a successor group. Uh, he said that, and I quote, there are some Al-Qaeda operatives who have indicated that they actually believe that ISIL is the true inheritor of Osama bin Laden's legacy. So these ties between ISIL and Al-Qaeda persist. And since this time, the executive branch has actually sort of shifted its argument again as to why ISIS comes under the 2001 AUMF. They've said, well, look, we were fighting ISIS in Iraq before 
when it was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So ISIS actually renamed itself. It was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And before then, it was a, a different name again. So we were fighting ISIS in Iraq when it was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, it renamed itself. We left. Two years passed. That's fine. It's perfectly lawful for us to re-enter Iraq without congressional authorization to start fighting this group again. So these sort of shifting rationales without congressional input have been a real key tool to the expansion of these existing AUMFs. The third factor that has enabled the executive branch to continue expanding activities under the guise of the 2001 AUMF is, as I've said on the slide, the lack of a time limit, the lack of a sunset date for the authorization. This has meant that, you know, there's nothing that forces the executive branch and the legislative branch to come together to examine the current threat environment, debate whether military force is the appropriate response in all the circumstances uh, and, and sort of determine, you know, either to reauthorize, to refine or, or repeal uh, or let expire, I should say, these existing AUMFs. There's just no time limit. Um, and as a reminder, nearly all of, um, nearly, sorry, nearly a third of all prior congressional force authorizations have included sunsets. And, you know, that number gets even higher if you don't count declarations of war, which by nature, you know, authorize total war to have no limits. Um, so now turning to sort of what members of Congress think about this and what they've done. So members of Congress who voted for the 2001 AUMF, and I should say that this was a very popular AUMF when it was voted on, all but one member of Congress voted for it, and that member was uh, Representative Barbara Lee from California. Uh, but all of those who did vote for it have said that, or many of those who voted for it, have said that they did not envisage it being used to justify force against this array of terrorist organisations and in numerous countries where force is being used today uh, and where it's been used in the past. Uh, one example is Senator Ben Cardin. He said, as one who voted for that AUMF when I was in Congress in 2002, I never intended, I think all of us never intended, it would still be used today to justify the use of military force against ISIS. So what has Congress done? Well, perhaps the most significant step that Congress has made actually relates to the 2002 Iraq AUMF. So last year, the House voted on a pretty overwhelmingly bipartisan basis uh, to repeal the 2002 AUMF. So I put it up here. It was a vote of 268 to 161, including 49 Republicans. And then there is also a bipartisan Senate bill, which Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley is actually an original co-sponsor of, uh, and this would repeal both the 2002 Iraq AUMF and the 1991 Gulf War AUMF. So that bill is being led by Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia and Senator Todd Young of Indiana. And they just feel we need to get both of these. They call them zombie authorizations off the book. We need to off the books. We need to prevent this or any future president from using them to expand wars because we've seen it before. We know it can happen again. And I should say that uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that he supports this and he will hold a vote on repealing these AUMFs, the 2002 and 1991 AUMFs this year. So watch this space. We will see what happens. 
Uh, when it comes to revisiting the 2001 AUMF, this is a much more complicated matter and very little progress has made has been made. Uh, many members of Congress have proposed replacement AUMFs, a narrowed AUMFs that include a time limit, include a limit on who can be targeted, who can be killed, the countries where you know, we can kill people, uh, where we can conduct war. Uh, but, you know, there hasn't really been a lot of support from the White House, um, from either parties um, on this issue. And so there's really been very little progress when it comes to these efforts to either repeal or reform the 2001 AUMF. I should say that uh, in 2013, then President Obama said that he would like to uh, refine and ultimately repeal the 2001 AUMF. But, uh, you know, we sort of haven't really seen that happening under uh, the Biden administration at this stage. So speaking of the Biden administration, uh, the President Biden has actually supported repealing the 2002 Iraq AUMF. So prior to the House vote last year, the administration released a statement of administration policy on the bill. And this is what it said. Said the administration supports the repeal of the 2002 AUMF as the United States has no ongoing military activities that rely solely on the 2002 AUMF. Uh, as the domestic legal basis and repeal of the 2002 AUMF would likely have minimal impact on current military operations. So yeah, the 2002 Iraq AUMF, it's still being relied upon for military operations, but really only in addition to the 2001 AUMF, which serves as the primary legal basis. But we have seen it being used on its own in a pretty dramatic way, which was the strike against Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. That was where the 2002 AUMF alone was claimed as a legal basis. So we have seen what many would call an abuse of this law to conduct an operation far beyond what Congress intended. So I just want to get back to the, the statement from the Biden administration, though they also said that the president is committed to working with Congress to ensure that outdated authorizations for the use of military force are replaced with a narrow and specific framework appropriate to ensure that we continue to protect Americans from terrorist threats. Uh, this, again, is very different from the Obama administration's position, the refine and ultimately repeal uh, position. Uh, there was no talk of a replacement AUMF from President Obama, for example, uh, uh, whereas that seems to be where the Biden administration is. That being said, the Biden administration hasn't actually proposed any new narrow 2001 AUMF. And getting back to what I, I started out discussing, Despite the president's claim that the United States is not at war, the administration actually recently released a report stating that the withdrawal of US forces from Afghanistan did not change the legal and policy frameworks for the use of military force in Afghanistan. So even though we're supposedly not at war in Afghanistan, the administration continues to rely on a war authority, the 2001 AUMF, potentially for other operations in Afghanistan. And in a court filing, the administration has said that the United States continues to be engaged in hostilities with Al-Qaeda and associated forces under its interpretation of the 2001 AUMF. 
So we really can't say that this is a United States that is not at war. Uh, the current administration seems to very much be continuing along the same path of the last 20 years when it comes to uh, these war authorities. So just finally, I wanted to end by talking about some other very consequential factors that impact US forever wars. So the issue of these forever wars really doesn't stop with the AUMFs. Over the last years, uh, Congress, sorry, the US has shifted its approach to counterterrorism. Um, that is one that is focused on war and the use of the military. So prior to 9-11, the US took a primarily law enforcement approach ter to terrorism. For example, following the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, those responsible were captured, tried, convicted and sentenced and are currently imprisoned in US prisons. So in addition, though, to the full-scale wars that the U.S. has been conducting, uh, researchers at the Brown University Cost of War Project, and this is, this is from their project, they have found that over the last two years alone, the U.S. has conducted uh, militarized counterterrorism operations in 85 countries. Now, that's up from 80 countries in the prior two years and 76 countries in the two years before that. Uh, so many of our overseas operations, they, they consist of what we call train, equip, advise and assist programs that encourage other countries to use the military to respond to terrorism. But these programs also didn't exist before 9-11. You know, they began in 2005. And there are real questions about the effectiveness of, of these programs. So, for example, U.S. troops in Niger uh, in 2017, we're conducting one of these programs when four service members were killed in an ambush attack. And it's also been said that US funding, weapons and training in Burkina Faso helped lay the groundwork for the country's increased militarism and ultimately the coup we produced earlier this year. And again, despite the US coming out of Afghanistan, the Biden administration has increased its budget request for military spending. So we're really continuing to rely on, on war and the military when it comes to counterterrorism. There really hasn't been any shift in this approach. And so any effort to bring an end to US forever wars really needs to look not only at the AUMS, but also the entire approach to counterterrorism taken by the US government and the use of war as a means to ostensibly keep us safe and promote stability. So that is where we're at with the authorizations for use of military force and US forever wars. Uh, thank you very much. And I would be happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you, Heather. Um, we're gonna move to question and answer uh, portion of our program now. I know there, there are already a few questions in the chat, uh, but I'll get to those in just a minute. Submit your questions via the chat function. Uh, feel free to turn on your video uh, function, but you'll continue to be muted. And while we're waiting for questions to come in, ICFRC wants to thank its members and donors for their support. If you would like to join or make a gift, support our programs, please go to icfrc.org. Thank you. Okay, so I'm gonna look. So the first question, some of these came in during, the, the, during your presentation. So the first one, please explain the relation of US forever wars and maintenance 
of US arms industries, e.g. the expansion of NATO and required arms purchases? Yeah, so it's all very much interlinked. And, you know, as I mentioned at the very end, you know, the last thing that I discussed was the fact that it's not just about these AUMFs and the wars that they've authorized, it's about the use of the military and the reliance on the military to sort of solve the world's problems when it comes to terrorism or, you know, other kinds of, of internal conflict. Uh, you know, uh, the, the U.S. Is, is selling weapons to Saudi Arabia that is helping continue the war in Yemen against the Houthis, which has really been an absolute tra tragedy for, for the citizens of Yemen. Uh, you, you know, when it, it comes to NATO and these are ostensibly, you know, defensive um, you know, treaty organizations, and it is incredibly complicated now with the situation in Ukraine, for example, is the most sort of stark, you know, example of what's going on now, you know, these treaties are supposed to prevent war, but, you know, if there is a war, they're supposed to, you know, you know, do everything they can to stop them as quickly as possible. You know, the US is resisting getting involved in that war, but we are selling weapons to Ukraine, Perhaps that's a good thing because we want Ukraine to beat Russia. It's all very, very complicated. But the the weapons that the U.S. sells, uh, that you know, the the U.S. Um, weapons industry are producing are really astronomical. There have been efforts in Congress to stop these weapons sales uh, that have been incredibly destructive. You know, they they need to be looked at on a case by case basis, of course. But uh, it, it is, it's a sort of loop really, you know, we, we have, we're using war, we have this frame of war as the, the, what the, the thing that we use to solve issues with internal strife all around, all around the world. And then, you know, we have weapons manufacturers creating weapons. Then we also have those weapons manufacturers contributing to congressional campaigns, which then can influence how members of Congress act. It's really this whole, again, you know, I hate to say a military industrial complex, but it does really feed into itself uh, and, you know, arguably, uh, you know, make the world a, a, a less stable place and, and, and a, a, a more war driven place so it, it, it's it's definitely a, a, an issue yeah thank you uh another question uh the term appropriate in in uh, quotes seems to have left open the use of rendition torture waterboarding all these other kinds of things we've heard about over the years yeah, that's a great question. And, and I really appreciate bringing that up because I feel like the issue of the US history of torture is something that we don't, we haven't reckoned with properly and that continues to um, be an issue. So the, the, the Bush administration did claim that under the 2001 AUMF, uh, this treatment of people who were captured as part of the so-called war on terror, this, um, the torture of these people was something that was lawful. And, you know, it was subsequently, uh, you know, they were told that this was not the case. They, they also said that, um, you know, people, for example, held at Guantanamo Bay had no legal rights whatsoever, you know, that people captured during the war on terror, the Geneva Conventions didn't apply to them, human rights law didn't apply to them. There were a lot of claims, really terrible claims uh, made in, in the first, you know, few years of the um, following the 9-11 attacks uh, that these measures were appropriate. Um, 
you know, uh, the Bush administration did stop torturing its detainees, you know, a few years into the program uh, when, you know, leaks began happening of how these people were being treated. Uh, but we have really problematic legal opinions that were written saying that this was absolutely justifiable. Uh, and then when, you know, President Trump was running for office, he said that he would waterboard people and much worse. Uh, then we had, a, as a CIA director, Gina Haspel, who ran a torture site in, in Thailand. Uh, you know, the, there were a lot of things done and claimed to be appropriate under the 2001 AUMF um, that, you know, thankfully have stopped. But I think that the, the failure to properly reckon with those uh, still lingers and, and, and could still, you know, have an impact in the future if we, if we don't do anything about it. Okay, there, there's another question in the chat. If anybody has any other questions, uh, put them in the chat and we'll, we'll get to them. We've got a few more minutes here. Uh, David Smithers asks, were, were authorization for use of military force or declaration of, for, of war ever used for military operations against Native American nations during the 19th century? That's an interesting one. It is an interesting one. You know what, I, off the top of my head, I am not sure, but it would be in, and I'm going to now that I can finally share links again, I will share the link to um, the report that talks about all prior AUMS. Uh, I think they might have been actually. So let me go grab that quickly. Um, so this was a report that was done by the the National Security Network, which unfortunately is not around anymore, but um, they uh, catalogued every single AUMF and declaration of war. And if, if you take a look at the appendix, uh, you can see if there is something in there yeah. about Native Americans, but I think there might be. Great question. So here's, here's another one. Uh, some of our students are interested in learning how one becomes a legislative director working on these issues. Sure. Um, so I, it took me a little while to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I, I studied law. I'm originally from Australia. I studied law there. Always found it incredibly interesting. Didn't know what I wanted to do with it. Uh, we, in Australia, we do not have the robust uh, NGO, you know, civil society network that you all have in the US. So, um, you know, this, this sort of position wasn't available to me and I kind of went and pretended to be a regular lawyer for a little while. Um, but then uh, just to cut a long story short, I did uh, an LLM in national security law at uh, Georgetown and then I interned for a fantastic organisation called Human Rights First in their uh, national security program and then eventually was hired on there and uh, worked there for five years. And my current organization, FCNL, was looking for someone to do this work. So um, I skipped over there. Um, so that, that's, that's been my story. Um, unfortunately, I have to say that, especially when it comes to the nonprofit world, um, working for free for a period of time is often the thing that can help you get your foot in the door. So for me, it was an internship uh, that I did during my LLM. So I did get course credit for that, that free work, but then I extended it into the summer and um, just, it just gave me 
more of an opportunity to sort of really get into the work there. So, but, you know, looking for things like fellowships and other sorts of opportunities where you can get funding from your university or from other sorts of institutions and you can bring that to an organisation uh, is also an excellent way to sort of, you know, sort of work for free. You, you get paid, but they don't have to pay for you. So always be on the lookout for those sorts of opportunities. There you go. Thank you very much. Uh, let's see. And Nick Johnson's got a question. What's the relationship to forever wars of abolishing the draft, not pay as we go, but wars of free putting costs on children, grandchildren's child care, credit care, and only 1% of Americans doing the fighting as much as half of them are private contract employees. That's a, that's a complicated one too. Yeah. Uh, look, thank you for that question, Nicholas. Um, it's, it's all, it's all linked up, frankly, you know, um, I was honestly shocked when I when I came to the US, um, when I got my tax return back, I thought I was going to get a lot more money back because in Australia, we have universal health care. <laughs> and, and I think that so much money in the US goes into the military. And that really impacts the ability to, you know, um, you know, give Americans or, you know, help Americans with all of these other um, other costs like um, uh, like childcare or education, those sorts of things. So, um, you know, it, it and, and it re the fact that we have so many people who are not in the military during the fighting, I think sort of tells you a lot about how Americans are feeling about these wars. You know, if you look at polling, Americans are sick of these wars. That we're wondering what we're fighting for. You know, I, I mentioned the situation in Burkina Faso. You know, we went in there. We said to them, "Hey, they they didn't have they weren't at war at the time. They didn't even really have a particularly strong terrorism problem." But we went in there. We said, "You know, this is what you need to do. You need to use military force. This is how you're going to get things under control." And then they then they ended up in a war, and now they've had a coup. So I think that you know, there, there's a lot of weariness when it comes to these, these wars, there's a real reluctance on Americans to, to want to fight them. We're sort of wondering what we're fighting for. Um, and then it does really feed into, you know, domestic policy and, and other issues when it comes to people's daily lives. Yeah, that's, that's, another, that's another program in itself, right? And, and probably several programs. Thank you, Nick, for that question. Any other questions coming in? I don't see any right now. So I, it got all, we've got a couple of minutes here. It got me thinking about the, uh, when the Obama administration went in and killed Osama bin Laden, took that raid and, and then I'm assuming that was the justification that would have been one of those AUMFs, the 2001 one, I assume. Does that make sense? Yes, it was. It was the 2001 AUMF. There might have also been a bit of the president's Article Two Commander-in-Chief authority that was mixed in there. Um, you know, there were real issues about the U.S. going into Pakistan without consent from Pakistan. Um, you know, it was one thing to go into Afghanistan and fight at the time, you know, the Taliban, the de facto government there, but it was another thing entirely to go into a totally separate country there. Um, there are, you know, there is an Office of Legal Counsel memo on the, the precise legal justifications there, but uh, it was largely the 2001 AUMF sort of this claim that, well, you know, bin Laden is part of Al-Qaeda and the 2001 AUMF authorizes us to use force against Al-Qaeda. And frankly, there weren't geographic limitations written into the 2001 AUMF. So we can go into Pakistan too, was sort of, sort of the gist of it. 
Yeah, okay. There's, uh, well, a comment from uh, Mike Franken. Thank you, Mike. For what it's worth, many of us in the military wish that the AUMF would be set aside. We are not unrealistic, but we are left in some predicaments which the government bows to public opinion or creates a long-term problem. Conf let's see, conflict ought to really, conflict ought to really difficult to justify. The AUMF cuts too many corners. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Michael. And uh, you just reminded me, we work with a lot of veterans groups actually on this issue who really wanna see these AUMFs repealed, you know, also military family groups. Uh, they they have real problems with it with with current operations with you know again you mentioned that you know this is supposed to be something that is a difficult decision to make and the executive branch just keeps on you know using military force without going back to Congress Congress doesn't debate it uh, and it's a real problem and I think you know in uh, polling of the military and veterans that the um, sort of you know, opposition to current wars and for Congress to reassert its war powers and really debate whether we should be expanding this use of force, that that's actually higher than it is when it comes to the general population, those who want Congress to get back in the business of it, want the executive branch to stop expanding wars. So thank you very much, Michael, for your comment. I appreciate it. Mr. Franken is currently running for Senator here in Iowa. So, for the, so thank you. Um, and he's a military veteran, obviously. Uh, okay, any other questions coming in? Anybody? Got, probably got time for one more. Anybody? Okay, I don't don't see anything coming through. Um, I'll go ahead and, and bring this to a close. Then, uh, thank you very much, Heather, for your uh, presentation today and uh, sharing your expertise with us today. Uh, as as uh, host of the uh, of the session, it's my uh, pleasure to virtually present you with an ICFRC highly coveted mug for coffee, tea, or the beverage of your choice, and we will get it to you sometime in the near future as soon as we can. Thank you again for for your presentation. Uh, ICFRC's last program for the spring is next week. Next, uh, yeah, next Wednesday, May fourth. 12 noon via Zoom. It will focus on how refugees and immigrant stories and experiences can inform public policy. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Art Cullen from Storm Lake, Iowa will be joined by representatives from other Iowa cities for this informed discussion. Thank you for joining us today and we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.